Did you hear the news? LifeFlow has been named one of the best accounting and finance software products for 2024 by G2. And because of the support of listeners like you, LifeFlow is also on G2's list of the 100 fastest growing products of 2024. If you're thinking about implementing LifeFlow with clients soon, there's even more good news. G2 also awarded LifeFlow as most implementable for winter 2024. Stay tuned to hear more from our sponsor, LifeFlow, later in the episode. Ever wished you could earn CPE credits while on the go? Introducing Earmark, the app revolutionizing the way accountants earn their CPE. Just listen to your favorite accounting and tax podcasts, whether you're driving to work, working out, or even doing chores. After you're done listening, take a quick quiz. Score 70% or higher, you've earned your CPE. It's that easy. Plus, with Earmark, you're not just ticking a box. You're actually learning valuable insights from top accounting podcasts. So why wait? Download the Earmark app now on iOS or Android and transform your listening time into CPE credits. Make the most of your day and stay ahead with Earmark. I don't understand why CPAs are so worked up about this. And I'm a CPA. Maybe I just am not conservative enough or not risk averse enough. But I feel like, honestly, when I look at these discussions on these threads, like on the Arizona Society forums and online, and I see CPAs who are like, you know, worrying about this, I say, like, do you, you want to make money? Like, are you interested in making profits in your firm <laughs> or and not? I'm... Coming to you weekly from the OnPay Recording Studio. Hello and welcome back to the show. I'm Blake Oliver. And I'm David Leary. And Blake, I know you have big ambitions, right? Between Earmark and you are, uh, you know, you could be the president of NASBA. But if these things don't work <laughs> out, I have another way for you to get rich. Really? Tell possibly, me. I need possibly. I need to know. And you don't even need to be a CPA to do it. So I'll give you some background. So last week, I think we recorded on Friday, or I mean whatever day we recorded. And that day, I think the next steps of the Trump trial started taking place. And so mm -hmm. I saw the headlines, but we didn't have time to digest it. And my reaction was, because they were talking about they're bringing in the expert witness. And you're talking about the civil fraud trial in New York. Oh, yeah. For, for Trump's fraud trial. Yep. Okay. And they're bringing in this gap expert, right? They're bringing him in. His name is Eli Bartov. And he is a professor of accounting at New York University's Leonard and Stern School of Business. He has a PhD from UC Berkeley in 1989. So I, I was like, who is this guy? So I went mm -hmm. and found his LinkedIn page. And basically, he has 31 years, seven months at the New York Stern School of Business. But from what I can tell, no CPA, no working in practice, no, like, no practical practice. It's all educational. And then he has a summary, right? You know, like on LinkedIn, you kind of summarize. There's a paragraph. I don't think I have anything typed on mine. But and he, I'll, I'll read this. An award-winning researcher and teacher an internationally recognized scholar. So that's the first sentence. Mm -hmm. Second sentence, expert testimony testified on issues related to financial reporting, U.S. GAAP, executive compensation, insider trading, and equity valuation and securities frauds, contract disputes, and other litigation. And then it talks about his consulting. Then it talks about his training. And, you know, he's taught norm numerous short courses. It's kind of funny that the educational one is like the third bullet, you know, to some extent. Okay. And, so this guy, he's he's a professor at New York University in accounting. Yes. He's been there for decades, and he's he testified as Trump's star expert witness. Yes, and so so I went down this, and my first reaction was, "Oh, great, not a CPA." But we never talked about the story last week. Then this week, the story broke about how much he got paid for doing this testimony. Not, it was like nine hundred thousand dollars. Nine hundred thousand. I'm in the wrong line of work, David. We are That's we are saying. totally. He got paid $900,000 to be an expert witness in a single fraud case. Yeah. So according to the uh, deposition in the court documents, he said he had worked approximately 650 hours, amounting to a total of $877,000. So basically $1,350 an hour. And this is being there, paid for by both Trump Organization and his political action committee, Save America, which wow. I find interesting. Um, but... But both sides this work. So on the other side, the prosecution brought an expert witness, uh, mm -hmm. and he is a chairman and CEO of an investment bank called Dillon & Co. He got paid $350,000 to testify on the other side. Like, we, wow. were, we were in the wrong business. This is now, nuts. Now, the part that went off in my head, so the professor is not a CPA. Right. So if you're not a CPA, do you, 
you don't have, if you're just a PhD professor, you probably don't have the same ethical standards, I would guess, right? <laughs> Maybe not. You I, have yeah. to have ethical standards of your CPA. Yes, you well, you yes, you have to uphold your duty to the public. So that's that's where that it's a shocking number. It's shocking. Yeah. Well, I think when I was in public accounting, I left as a manager. My hourly rate that we billed to our clients was something like two hundred and fifty dollars an hour. So this guy's got me beat at one thousand three hundred and fifty. Incredible. And even, hey, welcome. I want to say welcome, David, okay. before oh, yeah, you go on. Absolutely. Welcome to everyone who joined us live. As a reminder, you can subscribe to us on YouTube and get notified when we go live. So hi, Brenda. Brenda says, stop. I can't even. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Boring Accountant says, four coffee emojis. Uh, normally, it's one coffee emoji, Boring Accountant. So it must be... Um, you must be very tired. Did you did you go out and to the holiday party last night? Have one too many? If so, you have my sympathies. But, but awesome. I, I, in general, I don't think this helps the AICP's efforts of improving the image of the why you should the, the argument to get your CPA. Like this is not good if you can make this much money not being a CPA. Well, but or or they could be promoting it. Forensic accounting is like a sexy area of accounting, and they always mention it when they talk about yeah. cool things to do as an accountant. And that would be something I would be doing if I was still in practice. I think forensics is just awesome, and fraud is you know related to that, right? Yes. Being an expert witness. Yeah, I wonder if he uh, padded his hours in this case at all. We'll never know, I suppose. I want to see the timesheets. I'd love to see the timesheets. Well, David, um, we got a lot to talk about. Got to get to it. Um, <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to take things in another direction here. Okay. Uh this was in the New York Post. Lovely journalistic publication there. They've got in New York. Escort who caters to Wall Street bankers rakes in $34,000 per week in December. Quote, most interesting woman they've ever met. And um this is a profile of Mia Lee, who's 35 who gets her stocking stuffed with wads of cash mainly from private dancing sessions at one of Manhattan's elite strip clubs, as well as by charging for luxurious getaways, she told The Post. Uh, and she's a former Wall Street accountant. So this was, on my feed reader, this was like the most popular story that had anything to do with accounting this past week, was the story of Mia Lee, who, had, who went from being an accountant on Wall Street uh, to being a, uh, a stripper and a uh, escort. So there you go. That's a, that's great for our image, isn't it? Oh, I mean, it um, ties into the Illinois study, right? Illinois, at least the new study on turnover in the profession. I think the number one thing in that study was pay. Right? And like, we'll talk about that. Yeah, yeah, we'll talk about that. Before we get to that, I want to oh, yeah. I want to give you a quote from this article. Um, the one-time forensic accountant who came to the U.S. from China at a young age revealed that she surprises her clients with her knowledge of financial affairs. She claims to have spent a dozen years working on Wall Street. I had a pretty colorful career in finance, she told The Post. But when pressed for specifics, she would only say, that's for my clients to know. So, okay, okay. So just, I'm rewinding. Like, so her, what separates her from the other escorts? Like, if they're all equal, equal looks, uh -huh. equal everything, what they do is equal, the way they dance is equal. What's, yeah. what's setting her up is her accounting knowledge. That's, her intelligence. That's giving her intelligence yeah. and her accounting knowledge. And, and you know, if she's, if she's, got Wall Street clients, she can actually talk to them on their level, right? And, um, you know, what's interesting is her hourly rate is actually not that far off from uh, our expert witness in the yes. Trump trial. Her cheapest option is a minimum one-hour session that goes for $1,300. So, and he was $1,350, right? Yeah. So, so there you go. Uh, uh, <laughs> expert witness in the Trump fraud trial in New York, $1,350 an hour. Or former forensic accountant turned escort $1,300. Is anybody that's in the live chat today, if you're, are, is your hourly rate $1,350 or $1,300? Give a little thumb emoji up or down, please. To see if it is, your opportunity cost for joining us today is extremely high. And I advise <laughs> you to get back to work right away. You are, you are losing a lot of money. Or our value is just that great, you know. Yeah. Uh, okay, let's talk about this um, retention survey. And I'm going to put this up on the screen because there's some great charts, and it's another good reason for our listeners um, you know, to join us live or to watch us on YouTube. 
So this is a survey called, well, it's not a survey called, it's a report called Writing Retention by the Illinois CPA Society, a look into the accounting profession's greatest management challenge. Uh, And we all know, if you listen to the show, you know that retention is a big deal in accounting. We lost a lot of people. We continue to lose a lot of people. And Illinois, the Illinois Society has been doing great work uh, investigating this and doing surveys. Uh, They did one that's an excellent one on diversity and inclusion last year, I think it was, and now they've got another one here. Um, So let's go through the highlights, right? Um, Turnover takeaways. Rising turnover is real. Almost 39% of employers responding to their survey, and these were Illinois employers, said they're seeing increased turnover rates. Approximately 42% of public accounting firms and 34% of public and private companies. On the contrary, fewer than 14% of employers said their turnover rates were declining. Accountants quit their employers, but not necessarily the profession. While many employers, about a third, believe their accounting and finance talent is leaving the profession, the truth is less than 1% of the employees responded to their survey who changed jobs actually left it. So that's different than what I thought. I thought that a lot of accountants were leaving entirely. So I guess they're going from what, public accounting into industry, or they're going from one industry job to another. I guess they're not just, they're not telling their employers. Like, how, how do the employers have such a different view of this than the employees? Communication issue here. Now, here's, here's a question. Why are they leaving? Salary was the most cited reason. Not enough money. The second most cited reason is, ding, 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 no surprise here, too many hours slash burnout. And the third most cited reason is lack of work-life balance. So the burnout was interesting. So their bullet number five here, really the one that kind of hit my brain a little little hard on comprehending it. The people that are left, so when people leave, the it actually causes even more burnout because you have to pick up work for the people who have left the profession. And they're saying managers and staff leadership are having now to pick up more work, which now you're like, why am I working so hard if I never get to actually stop working if I hit a yep. management level? And so the... It's a compounding problem. Yeah. So two-thirds of employers have seen workloads increase for staff at the leadership level due to the retention challenges. So managers, directors, and partners are working harder because they don't have the staff, which leads to more burnout, which then leads to the managers leaving, which then causes more stress on the directors and the partners or the C-suite, depending on whether you're in industry or not. So it's a uh, reinforcing cycle a doom loop, as some people have it's called like it. It's like Jenga. Yeah. <laughs> Number eight um, is your answer to that other question of the uh, why, why, why there's a disconnect between the, man, the employers and the employees. Oh, employers and, em- employers and employees are out of touch with each other. Yeah. Um, 28% of employers said they never ask their employees what they most value. Well, if you don't ask, you won't know, and you won't be able to help them out. Dang. Um, what do employees value? Career advancement paths and opportunities is listed as one of the most attractive benefits an employer. But half of employers don't communicate defined advancement paths for employees. That was my experience in public accounting. There was this totally ambiguous path to partner. And so it was sort of just like, hang out, hang out for a while and you'll find out. Um, job hopping is a myth. So... Most employees are staying with their employers for one to three years. 44% are staying one to three years. 36% stay between four and six years. And 18% stay seven years or longer. And just 2% leave within their first year. So accountants are actually good. We're not job hoppers. The first sentence in 10 is strikingly surprising. According to their findings, 64% of employers have increased employee compensation in the last two years. For sake of argument, it's only half. So only half of people that are enrolling or employing accountants, only half have raised well, the compensation? You said it's 64%. Well, yeah. For, for argument's sake, 64 is like well, you're closer up. to half I mean, than it is 80% or 100%. I would say, well, let's say two-thirds. Two-thirds. Sorry, but but a, here's, the, here's what's misleading about that, is that the salary increases, how much were those? Probably just enough to keep up with inflation, right? So it really is meaningless. It's like, it's just keeping it steady. But but this tells me one third are not even keeping up with inflation at all. They're not even no. trying. Yeah, that's bad. And then only half have implemented flexible hours. But that's one of the things that employees value the most. 
is the flexible hours. And a full 14% haven't made any changes to address the turnover challenge. So thank you to Illinois for sending that on over. Uh, we appreciate it, uh, Derek, over at the Illinois Society. Hey, if you are listening and you are from a society and you do research like this, we want to see it. We want to share it with the world. So you can send it to us. We are at the accounting podcast at earmark.me. That email is the accounting podcast at earmark.me. And we love getting listener mail. We love getting voicemails. When we get voicemails, we often play them on the air. Uh, so send us your research. Send us your thoughts. Yeah, this thing about the increased workload for staff at higher slash leadership level is concerning to me. And it fits with this stat that I read a while ago that um, partners are actually working more hours than staff now. And put that into perspective. If you're a staff person and you are watching that partner working more hours than the staff, why would you want to become a partner? Yeah, yeah you yeah. wouldn't. <laughs> yeah, I'm the whole work, idea. I'm going to work that, extra hard to get a job where I have to work even harder. Yeah, the whole point is that you move up in the organization and you work less. That's the that's what it's supposed to be. It doesn't matter if you make more because you're not going to have any time to spend the money. And Gen Z understands that. Slinkdog75 says salary increases might be for new hires, not existing staff as well. Yes, and that's true. When we see the um, range of salary increases, I think CPA Trendlands reported that the increases were last year something between like 5 and 14%. And if you only raised your starting staff salaries 5%, you just kept up with inflation. <laughs> and they're more likely to be raising the salaries higher for the experienced staff who are more valuable to the organization. Boring accountant says, when I talk to others outside of the accounting industry and there's no awareness of an accounting shortage. Oh, there's no awareness of an accounting shortage outside of our profession. Yeah, I agree. So what is the so what to having less accountants? How will it impact non-accountants? Yeah, that's the thing is that because the rest of us, well, those who are left in the profession are not, are picking up the slack, there hasn't been a huge crisis that the outside world has perceived yet. But we could get there, right? Like it could get so bad that we have another Enron. And that's when people will start to pay attention perhaps. And they might be paying attention, Blake. I know I texted this to you. So last week I had some time in between, you know, picking up a kid and I went to a, a bar that has a nice like patio. The weather's perfect right now in Tucson. And I was sitting there and I got accounting stickers on my laptop. And here is what the bartender asked me. She said, do you think, and we weren't even having a conversation. She just flat out asked it out of the blue. Do you think AI is going to take jobs away from accountants? I'm like, are we at that level of mainstream now where people are thinking about this? And she's not an accountant. I asked her, are you an accountant? She's no, but she has a friend that's in photography that's using a lot of AI yeah. uh, tools. And she just connected the dots. So I thought that was kind of interesting that we're, it's that, con and it was, I was almost shocked that she asked me that. I was like, oh, wow, this is not just us on our podcast talking about this anymore. Did you clap back at her and ask her if uh, she thinks bartenders are going to get automated by AI? funny. <laughs> Should have thought about I that. I mean, they're working on those robot bartender uh, robots. Oh, they, they can make drinks, but they are slow. Have you ever been to a conference where they have one of these yeah. on display? They're just yeah. so slow. They'll get faster. They'll figure it out. Um, this chart here, I just want to highlight for everyone, why do employees resign? Top reasons, seeking more work-life balance, wanting to avoid fewer hours slash avoid burnout, and then salary. So like there's real options here. Remote work is actually only half of the work-life balance. So the option here, if you're an employer, is give your people more flexible hours. Let them choose their own hours. They don't need to be sitting in that chair with you looking over their shoulder to get work done. I mean, some people do, but you just don't hire those people. So, so, so we know plenty of modern forward-thinking firms, many of them listen to this podcast, and they're solving all of those pain points for their teams. Yes. Like how do, as a profession, how does the word about that get out more to accountants going into the profession at universities? Because right now everything is, the stories everybody hears, the go to work at all audit and you're going to burn out. Right. How do they discover all these other opportunities? You know, I don't, I don't an know, answer, but I don't have an answer to that. If you know, and you're listening, let us know, shoot us an email, the accounting podcast at earmark.me. We should make a list of firms that offer flexible work well, environments. I set up a little website and an air table, like, like, like accounting jobs you might want to have. And we'll just yep. list those firms. Yeah. 
This episode of the Accounting Podcast is sponsored by LifeLow. I was talking to Beth Melcher of MoneyFit or QuickBooks Connect, and she was raving about how LifeLow's consolidation feature is saving her team 15 to 20 minutes per client every week. I love how LifeLow's automated multi-entity consolidation is so simple to use. You can easily map multiple unmatching chart of accounts from multiple QuickBooks online companies into one unified report. And once it's set up, LifeLow works its magic, updating the consolidations automatically in real time, so you can focus on analysis using instantly updated data. LifeLow can even consolidate financials that are different currencies, and the possibilities don't stop there. LifeLow empowers you with flexible, powerful reporting tools to create customized dashboards that meet your specific needs, build executive presentations, cash flow forecast, and more with just a few clicks. To stop grueling over manual consolidation reports and to get 20% off your first three months, head over to accountingpodcast.promo slash liveflow. That is accountingpodcast.promo forward slash L-I-V-E-F-L-O-W. Let's keep going. Um, here's a study that I saw. Accounting Rules in the Supply of Accountants. This is fascinating to me. This was published on SSRN.com. This is uh, by Anthony Lee from Columbia University. What is SSRN.com? What is I, it's, I, I don't know what it actually stands for. It's an e-journal site uh, okay. for like academic papers. So this is, you know, like a real study, academic study, right? Anthony Lee explored the role that accounting rules, in particular the restrictiveness of gap, have played in the declining supply of accountants. He finds that when exposure to restrictiveness is high, there are fewer students majoring in accounting, fewer CPA exam candidates, and fewer accountants and auditors overall. The overall demand for accountants does not decrease when exposure to restrictiveness is higher. However, the nature of the demand for accountants changes. There is less focus on tasks such as applying judgment, thinking creatively, and thinking critically, and more focus on determining compliance. Despite the decrease in the number of accountants, earnings for accountants do not increase, and the wage distribution becomes more compressed. Basically, he has studied this and found that GAAP becoming more restrictive, more rules-based, has reduced the supply of accountants, because people don't want to do that. People don't want to work jobs where they're just following a bunch of rules. So here's a solution to the accounting talent crisis is actually to simplify GAP and make it, make it more uh, creative in the sense that it's, it's not just following a zillion rules, you know, like lease accounting and ASC 606 and all this crazy stuff that FASB has been doing over the last decades. Like take accounting back to its roots where you could actually use discretion as an accountant and you could generate financial statements that actually make sense. You're not just following a bunch of rules. So I, I think this is fascinating. I've never seen anything like this. And I hope that uh, the leaders in our profession will pay attention to this. Like it's regulation in many ways, I think that's killing the profession. Too much regulation, right? Regulation it around- So much headache, you're like, forget it. I'll do something else. It's yeah, just, it, and it's not enjoyable. You're right because, and you've said this at conferences where, like, there's actual accounting happening. You're like, that's accounting. All the other stuff is not accounting, right? And if people yeah. fall in love with accounting so, and the art of accounting, I, I encourage all of our listeners to read the book, uh, "The End of Accounting," by Baruch Lev, who has done research into this and found that financial statements are just not that useful to investors anymore. It accounts for like less than fourteen percent of their decision making. Because GAP has not modernized, it's too inflexible, it's a bunch of rules, and it doesn't describe businesses based on intangible assets very well. So think about it this way. If investors aren't using financial statements, that means all this work we're doing to generate financial statements has less value. Therefore, accountants make less money, right? You have to deliver value to make money. So yeah. that's why salaries have stagnated. Because what we're doing is just not that useful. When was the last time any of you read the GAP financial statements before making an investment decision. If you go to a conference, even when you ask all the people that have all the experience- The people know, making the statements the, are the not The people that supposedly that. know what all this stuff means, they don't even read the financial statements. So it's same thing with audits, right? If the financial statements aren't that useful, what is the use of the audit? And then audits have become commoditized and check the box activities. So there's your problem. If we actually wanna solve the accounting talent crisis, we have to get to the root of the problem, which is, Accounting just has to be modernized. The language is, is if accounting is the language of business, GAP is Latin. 
Well, just in time, FASB has announced uh, some new rules. I don't know if you saw that this week for cryptocurrencies held by Tell me about it. So previously, remember, if you had cryptocurrency on your balance sheet, uh, examples, Tesla had a lot. And so it was at MicroStrategy. Those guys were Mm -hmm. all in on the the Bitcoin and the um, Ethereum. And but you never could adjust it. You had to leave it at whatever you paid for it. So now um, they're going to change to fair value. And so now you can period, period, adjust that and flow that through the uh, net income and recognize both the gains and the losses of that crypto over time. Um, This takes effect for fiscal years that start after December 15th, 2024, which means for 2025 calendar year end companies, they can choose to follow the rules ahead of the actual deadline, which I think was in 2027. So more rules. But at some level, like the argument is also like modernized things. At least this is kind of catching up a little bit. Yeah. It's a little bit modern. It feels modern. I guess. It took them too long to do it, though, right? Like, how long we had crypto? Well, I think that was the shocking yeah. part. It's still, like, three more years before, like, you have to do this. <laughs> uh, all right. Let's talk, about, let's talk about tax season. The IRS is expanding their modernization efforts for technology. The new IRS business tax accounts tool, which allows you to log into a portal and to access information and submit documents... Amazing. We finally have a way to submit documents to the IRS outside of snail mail and and fax. It's it's a world-changing technology here. Well, the good news is that that tool, um, which was previously only available to sole proprietors with an EIN, now is available to individual partners of partnerships and individual shareholders of S-corporation businesses. They can also access a business tax account. The information and features that will be available to you depend on the business type and your role in the business. Sole proprietors with an EIN can view their business balance due, tax records, business name, and address on file, and select digital notices. They can also request a tax compliance check and register for clean energy credits. Does it have, I mean, did it mention about having a a team use case or I can invite my accountant to also log in on my behalf or? I don't see that here right in what I'm looking at, but I think that was something that was, it is possible. Like you can do the power of attorney thing now on this portal or soon will be able to. Um, And that's going to be a welcome change. As somebody who has recently had to fax an EIN application (laughs) into the IRS because the online tool wasn't working, this is a welcome change. I I think I saw this week about EINs about how it's taking too long. Well, yeah. So the I saw the article too, and it's it's all related to this FinCEN thing, uh, which we should talk about because it's kind of absurd what is going on with FinCEN right now. <laughs> so so it takes it can take a while to get an EIN. Like in my case, I couldn't use the online tool for whatever reason. I think it's because I have created too many businesses recently, and so you know, like they they made me fax it in, and then I had problems, so I had to fax back and forth and figure out what the issue was and all that stuff. And my my tax accountant had to call in and sort it out. And so that's the problem because if FinCEN requires you to report your beneficial ownership, this whole new beneficial ownership information report, like within 30 days, and you don't have an EIN yet, you can't report. So then you're in violation and there's these, you know, significant fines and even potential jail time if you don't comply with this FinCEN rule. Uh, So that's an issue. But I think the bigger issue is that FinCEN... As we record, it's December 20th, and this new rule, this new this new reporting requirement goes into effect January 1st for new businesses, and the form still isn't available. The, the actual form that you fill out is not yet available. How is now, this possible? They're that, pushing like, for delays, right? They want to get try to possibly postpone or delay. And AICPA then my, is pushing yeah. for a delay to this whole requirement for like and a year. And in my understanding, it's still not hashed out perfectly and they could roll out here on the first all these new problems arise and they're going to probably change it three four five times during this year this, is my, this whole my thing is going to be a gigantic uh show if you ask me because something like 30 million businesses are now required to file this report now the existing businesses don't have to do it until 2025 i think the end of 2024 but new businesses have to do it and there's lots of new businesses created every single day so we'll see I don't know. Maybe it'll just become a giant, you know, cluster. 
and then there'll be a delay or something like that. But I just can't believe that we're we're 13 days, four, we're two weeks out from this new filing requirement and the form is not available. And there's like no p- online portal available. Like, are they really going to get this done before January 1st? And in, in Twitter is very hard now to you in general. So I feel like I miss things, but I, and it's hard to like review what happened. But apparently there's a big, big argument. People are on two sides of the fence on this on tax Twitter, I guess, this week. Um, about how, what? About firms should be dealing with this, not dealing with this. Oh, yeah. And that's the crazy thing. Yeah. yeah. The lawyers don't want to do it. The, uh, the accountants don't want to do it. So who's going to do this thing? I'm actually in the camp of like, figure out how to do this for your clients, especially if you're doing accounting, outsourced accounting work. Like this is a perfect opportunity. To me, it's like a lot like 1099 reporting. You could totally productize this service, do it for your clients. And if you're worried about it taking up too much of your time, just charge enough money for it, right? Like like, <laughs> like $1,300 an hour. <laughs> well, I've seen um, there's some like technology startups, yep. which... I don't know how much technology they're actually using, uh, but they're basically, you know, like productized BOI reporting startups that are saying uh, $300 a year for your BOI report. And then it will handle the initial filing and then the changes if you need to like update it. And I'm like, hey, you know, if you have 100 clients that need BOI reporting and you charge them $300 a year, I think you could staff that. Now, the question is, unauthorized practice of law, how do you get around that? And I think there's lots of ways you could get around that, like push that determination back on the client. Don't make that determination yourself and just facilitate the filing. But I don't understand why CPAs are so worked up about this. And I'm a CPA. Maybe I just am not conservative enough or not risk averse enough. But I feel like honestly, when I look at these discussions on these threads, like on the Arizona Society forums and online, and I see CPAs who are like, you know, worrying about this, I say, like, do you, do you want to make money? Like, are you interested in making profits in your firm <laughs> or and, and not? I, and I think the real service here, if somebody could solve it, is, yes, you have to do the reporting. But it's the tracking to know when to report is the difficulty. Because if you have a, a partnership, there's 12 partners, right? Yeah. Uh, somebody's always either selling a house and moving or getting divorced and had a name right. change. And, like, how do you keep track of that to know to file the new reports? And that's... That's so, the, so, where the money is. If you can, if you can solve. That. I have a solution for you, David. Okay. I have a solution for everyone. Okay, <laughs> you set up a process in your firm where you sign people up for this, right? It's some mm-hmm. sort of web form. It can just be a, a web form, right? Now you've got this spreadsheet of clients. Our BOI babysitting service. You're going right. to sign up for that, okay. right? BOI babysitting. I like that. Okay, so every month you assign somebody in the firm, right? This is their job. Every month you go through that sheet. And you collect all of the emails for all of the partners, for all of these entities as well, right? And every month, every 30 days, you send an email out to the entire list and you say, has any of this information changed for you? If so, let us know. And like have a link to a form to fill it out, to change it. And then you've covered, you've CYA'd, right? And you charge them extra if they don't fill it out in a timely Fashion, well, if they don't fill it out in a timely yeah. fashion, they're the ones who are going to deal with the penalties, right? Yes. And you just make sure that the engagement letter for the service or the terms of service, which is a better thing to use, you know, covers you in this case. Now, you got to make sure that your insurance covers this thing too, right? Which is why it's better not to be a CPA firm, actually, <laughs> and to just be a service provider. Because if you're a CPA firm, now your insurance company is, you know, all up on you about this stuff. But like, I really don't, I just don't, Maybe I'm missing something, but I don't see the huge risk in doing this. Brenda says, I agree. I don't know why all the fretting. There could be automated emails with Formstack or something. Exactly, Brenda. We're on the same page here. I, I don't I don't I don't understand the accounting profession sometimes. Like do you want to make money or not? But, and then again, here's more rules and regulations that people have to follow. Then people are like, forget it, it's too much headache. I want out, right? <laughs> I guess so. If you're hearing this ad, it's because podcast advertising works. If you want to get your product, your company, your firm, your app, your community, etc., in front of accountants, bookkeepers, and tax professionals, you should be sponsoring Earmark podcasts like the Accounting Podcast, Oh My Fraud, the Unofficial QuickBooks Accountants Podcast, and the Earmark Podcast with Blake Oliver, CPA. These are the biggest accounting podcasts on the planet, and we just opened up the 2024 ad slots. If you're ready to make your mark with Earmark Podcast, send me an email. 
david at earmark.me. That is david at earmark.me. Also, did you hear that Earmark is now doing webinars? That's right, webinars. We're calling them Webinars Plus. The plus is that you can attend the webinar live or watch on YouTube, LinkedIn, or Facebook. And if you can't attend a live webinar, you can just watch it on demand and still get CPE credits via the Earmark app, whatever time, place, or format is most convenient for you. You'll find the Webinars Plus channel in the Earmark app. If you don't have the Earmark app yet, hit pause, click that App Store icon, and search for Earmark. It's that easy. Uh, let's talk about fraud. Let's do a fraud story. These are always fun. Former Jaguars employee inc- accused of stealing over $22 million. You're a football fan, David. Uh, um, my kid found that article and texted it to me. He's like, tell this to the old my fraud guys. They should cover this. And I want to get credit for discovering the story. That's what he told me. <laughs> a former Jacksonville Jaguars financial employee is accused of stealing more than $22 million from the franchise over a four-year period by manipulating its virtual credit card program. According to documents filed this week in U.S. District Court, this was written by Michael DeRocco. He's an ESPN staff writer, and this appeared on ESPN.com. So this is a new one for me: virtual credit card program. Let's let's dig into this and see how this happened. Did did your son, by the way, explain to you how this happened, David? No, because no, then he'd he just, get he, points. He, he, yes, yeah. and we could have yeah. brought him on to explain it to the listeners. And so when um, they say virtual credit cards, this is kind of like you would spin up with. Um, uh, well, really, it's more debit cards, but uh, I think ramp, an expensive Rex, management platform. A lot of those platforms that you spin up virtuals. Yep. Yeah. So you get you. Well, let's let's read what happened okay, in the article okay. and then see if we can figure it out. So, um, in the charges, it says that the individual was a former manager of financial planning and analysis, so not in accounting, in finance, who took advantage of his trusted position to covertly and intentionally commit significant fraudulent financial activity at the team's expense for personal benefit. He used the money for purchases that include a condominium in, uh, is it Ponte Vedra? Ponte Vedra Beach. He bought a Tesla Model 3 sedan, cryptocurrency, chartering private jets, luxury hotel stays, a country club membership, and luxury wristwatch watches. Well, that's a big mistake. As you will learn if you listen to the Oh My Fraud podcast, the one thing you should not do if you steal $22 million is conspicuous consumption of such fraudulently obtained funds. Um, Patel became the sole administrator in October 2019 of the Jaguars VCC program, which is a payment method that functions like a traditional credit card account, but without a physical credit card. Certain employees were allowed to use the VCC program for business-related purchases and expenses. Patel is accused of duplicating legitimate expenses in an electronic ledger inflating amounts of legitimate transactions and entering fictitious transactions and then using the money for personal purchases. So there's the other mistake, sole administrator. Of entering the bills and paying the bills. That's basically what he's doing. He's yeah. creating fake so, bills. He creates this fake credit card and pays it off. Such simple mistakes, internal controls, lack of internal controls, not having separation of duties and not having multiple administrators, and probably not having notifications of these purchases going to somebody else, even even just having a notification, right? Ah, well. I, How are the Jaguars doing this year, David? Uh, I think they're doing okay. Okay. They're, they're going to make the playoffs. I think they're doing okay. I, th- I think the, uh, the they're all owned by billionaires. So people, <laughs> probably, it goes, that's that justification of doing, that's one of the fraud triangles, right? Yes. You know, justification. Yes. Yeah, there's a billionaire. He's not going to care if I spend some of this money. I, saw, I, I don't even know where it was, Blake. It might have been like a, a Instagram Reels or something. Something flew by and somebody was talking about, fin- it, it was financial crime related. And somebody was like, you should always hire dumb employees that can never figure out how to steal from you. <laughs> just just get dumb employees. And then nobody, like, they might try to steal like five bucks, but they're not going to be able to commit millions of dollars of fraud against you. They'll never, well, the thing that, the thing that, that worries me is that the frauds that we hear about are so dumb. I wonder how many frauds that are smart we just never hear about because those <laughs> people true. just never get caught. The really right? smart people. Yes. Yeah. That's what I want to know. Uh, speaking of fraud, remember, remember that startup called Nikola, the tr- electric, uh, or is it like hydrogen powered truck company? Okay. You remember Obviously. them? Trevor Milton, the founder of Nikola, is getting four years in prison for deceptions on his zero emission trucks. Uh, so this was quite a brazen fraud. And I don't know if this was like before 
Theranos or during Theranos, but it's very similar in in the um, in the sense that like there never was a working product, and and the the thing you might have know have heard about was the advertisement they did like a a highlight reel or, or like some sort of promo video for these trucks where they At pushed the truck down a that. hill. They they had to they pushed the truck down a hill to make it look like the truck was driving, driving on its own. Yeah. Um, prosecutors had sought 11 years. He said that the company's zero emission truck prototype was drivable when it wasn't. Milton said Nikola was equipped to produce the necessary hydrogen to power the trucks when it wasn't. And he boasted that the company had a long list of sales orders, many to companies that didn't exist. Milton, speaking through tears during a three-hour hearing in Manhattan, told the judge that his statements about the company referred to its business model. Quote, I did not intend to harm anyone, and I did not commit those crimes, unquote, he said during a rambling 30-minute statement. He's been ordered to pay a $1 million fine and forfeit a property in Utah, where he's from. I just, I just, like, you only get four years, right? He gets four years for this massive fraud where he defrauded investors, right? And, like, the guy could, after four years, the guy could just live another life, basically. It doesn't seem like, doesn't seem like the consequences are really that great. I mean, I know four years is a long time, but he's only 41. Yeah, I mean, if you get to, if you think about a fraud like this for three, four, five years, you get to just live it up, man. Blowing money on stuff, living on the yeah. beach. You get caught, you serve your time. Four years later, you you kind of go back to normal life. I don't know. It's crazy. But his, you're getting he, the, he, he lost. So his fraud lost investors six hundred sixty million dollars, which under federal sentencing guidelines could mean sixty years in prison. But the prosecutors only pushed for eleven, and the guy only got four. I don't think penalties in general ever fit the crimes anymore. Like, did you see PwC? And I don't want to talk. It feels like every week's another cheating scandal. But PwC agrees to pay 1.45 million to settle with uh, CPA Ontario because they were exam cheating again. The ethics exam cheating it's scandal. Like, it's just, and it's just, like the penalties just are nothing. It's yeah. So basically, um, the lesson here is that if you want to commit a massive fraud on the public markets. Like he took a company public and then he continued to lie about it. Um, you can, and you'll just go to jail for a few years and then you'll get out and you'll be, uh, you'll be fine. So like, and that, this like rewinds everything about the profession and audit. How does a company go all the way to being public and not get caught and not like, how does this like, like, yeah, is everybody a, in the, in the, in the game, everybody getting a piece of the action? Like this doesn't make any sense. Doesn't they have to have know. audited financial statements to even go apply to go public? I, uh, it doesn't make any sense how it can get to that far without anybody calling it out. Moving on. Here's another stat that caught my attention. 64%, 64% of employees waste hours due to lack of deadlines. And I immediately thought, that that's not the accounting profession. We've got plenty of deadlines. But then I thought, actually, maybe... Maybe this does apply to us. Uh, but before I do that, let's dig into this stat more. This is a survey of 300 full-time U.S.-based professionals by work management platform Slingshot. 64% of the employees surveyed said they lose up to two hours a week because they lack deadlines. About a quarter said their productivity was also affected when they were unsure of which tasks and projects should be prioritized. And I thought to myself, well, we have lots of deadlines in accounting, so that can't possibly be the problem. But then I also thought, well, if the only thing you're working toward is, say, the April 15th deadline or the September or the October deadlines, then it could be a problem. Because if every return is the same priority, then it's really hard to know what to work on. you know. And um, so maybe that's something that accounting firms can work on, right, is like set set weekly goals and due dates instead of just having a massive pile of work that has to get done. Yeah. Well, I think due dates also contribute to not improving things. If you're constantly driven by a due date, I had to get some because it's due Friday and then next thing you know, it's next week and this is due Friday. You never get a chance to step back and um, improve the process or 
get better at something or um, be more efficient because you're mm-hmm. just always under the gun with those deadlines. And you're right. And it's worse when it's all one deadline date. And so hence what we've talked about before for firms, immediately file extensions for every single return and then just spread out that work spread for out the, the work. year. Yeah. yeah. That's what we see uh, the, the, the leading firms doing. And if you think your clients won't put up with that, fire them because you have leverage to do that. So do it. (laughs) This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by Keeper. By combining client communications, file review, reporting, and your task management, Keeper has everything you need to run your bookkeeping or task practice. Keeper is an all-in-one app that allows you, your team, and your clients to easily collaborate to make your monthly close as efficient as possible. Starting with a beautiful custom-branded client portal optimized for bookkeeping work, your client can answer questions you have about uncategorized transactions, allowing you to categorize and automatically post them to QuickBooks Online correctly, all without ever leaving Keeper. Via the month-end file review feature to surface transactions, that may not be posted correctly, and by providing the perfect customized report that each client may need, Keeper can highlight the value that your firm provides clients. Keeper's built-in task management ensures nothing falls through the cracks, and it includes time tracking so you can see where you and your team spends their time. With Keeper's 1099 manager, you can easily review each client's list of vendors, email address, physical address, tax ID, and the amount paid, and from the same screen, even request W9s for any vendors that you're missing information for. No more jumping between screens or browser tabs. Keeper has a very affordable and clear pricing model that starts at only $8 a month. To learn more about why thousands of bookkeepers and accountants trust Keeper to manage their month-end close and to get 20% off your first three months by using code CAP20, head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash Keeper. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash K-E-E-P-E-R. I got some big four news. EY is laying off U.S. partners amid tough economic conditions, as reported in the Wall Street Journal. Can you imagine if you spent 17 years working to make partner at EY, and then you got laid off? Wow. Now, to be fair, this is mainly on the advisory side of the U.S. operation, consulting, not audit, not tax. It's affecting over 10% of partners in consulting and about 4% in strategy and transactions. That's a lot. The layoffs follow EY's decision in April to let go of 3,000 U.S. employees or less than 5% of its U.S. workforce. The firm began notifying affected partners last week with the process expected to continue this week. Now, some part of me is thinking, like, why should it matter if they're a partner or not? Because I, I think about tech and I think of other companies. Or let's go to the auto industry. And if maybe you're managing that plant and they stop producing that car, nobody wants to buy your gas-powered automobile anymore, Blake, for whatever mm-hmm. reason. And they shut down that one plant just because you worked your way up and you're a senior manager, a VP of that plant or location, you're going to lose your job. I mean, like, why, why should it not be true for accountants and partners mm-hmm. either? I mean, I agree. Like, yes, if you worked really hard to get there, it sucks. But I don't, I don't see an issue with this per se. I'm sure partners that were running good divisions probably didn't get laid off. Some positive news about EY. They named, as their CEO, the first female global CEO of a big four firm. Janet, uh, is it Truncale? I'm going to say Truncale. I could be totally wrong, and I apologize to EY and to Janet if that is the case. Yes, she's the first woman to lead a big four audit firm's international network. She will assume her role on July 1st, succeeding Carmen DeCibio, the leader of the failed Project Everest, which aimed to split EY's consulting and uh, audit teams into different firms. Her most recent position was as regional managing partner for EY's financial services organization in the Americas, overseeing 14,000 professionals. Did you see that the IRS is going to reorg at the highest leadership levels? I did not. So previously, they always just had two deputy commissioners. And that gets a little gray of like, whose role is what? So now they're going to move to a one deputy commissioner and have four chief positions. So they're going to have somebody overseeing taxpayer service. 
tax compliance, information technology, and, and operations. So now it's very clear who's in charge of what and how they roll up. Um, hopefully that's more efficient and we will, we will see, <laughs> you know, but I think that's a, it's a good first step by uh, Danny Werfel to move on with this. The new commissioner. Yep. Well, here's something that's very timely uh, with what's going on in the Middle East. I have uh, been very reluctant to dive into any of that on our show because it's such a hot button topic, but there is a accounting finance angle to this. There was an article in the New York Times last week, and the headline is, Israel found the Hamas money machine years ago. Nobody turned it off. In 2018, Israeli security officials obtained secret documents detailing a private equity fund used by Hamas to finance its operations. The documents revealed assets worth hundreds of millions of dollars, including companies in Sudan, properties in the United Arab Emirates, and Algeria, and a real estate firm listed on the Turkish stock exchange. And this is what shocked me, is the amount of money that Hamas, a terrorist organization, controlled. It's like half a billion dollars, or it was, anyway, at its peak. So that's how they were able to finance what happened recently. Half a billion dollars of assets. And the United States knew about it, and Israel knew about it. Tens of millions of dollars were flowing from these companies to Hamas, aiding in the buildup of its military infrastructure. The New York Times says that Israeli and American officials failed to prioritize the financial intelligence they had, instead focusing on financial sanctions against Iran. Israeli leaders believe that Hamas was more interested in governing than fighting, a belief that contributed to the lack of action against the group's financial network. So they allowed Hamas to have the financial resources, thinking that they weren't going to use this for a terrorist attack, perhaps, and then they did. Yeah, because because it, it, by having these financial resources in this private, I think you're you're trying to look. We're being legit. We're trying to play by the rules of all of society, and then yeah, and so well, they, and so so they, so they were given a little bit of trust then. Well, and I'm not I'm not totally uh, up on all the geopolitics of this whole situation, but I have heard um, like one of the arguments I've heard about um, who's the who's the prime minister of Israel right now? Who's the leader? Uh, what's his name? Benjamin? Netanyahu, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. God, it's like I'm a child again because he was like prime minister when I was a kid. Or is he president? Whatever he is. Like his strategy was to divide the Palestinians by keeping Hamas in power in the Gaza Strip and the Palestinian Authority in power in uh, the West Bank. That obviously backfired. But I, I find it, regardless of where you stand on this issue, I find this financial aspect fascinating uh and it goes like this 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 trend this is not unique to this situation um bin laden osama bin laden built up a huge a huge asset base that allowed him to finance his operations too and we knew about it so a lot of this stuff that happens in the world like the killing it's often preceded by financial build up because how else do you finance it? So I feel like our intelligence organizations and our politicians like fail in this regard to stop this. And this reminds me of uh, George Clooney and ExpenseCon and his, his, his organization because that's kind of what they do is they go after the bad guys and you realize the only way to, to really get them is to take their money away. Yeah. Right? Yep. Yep. You can't shame them for the murders. That doesn't work. No. Um. So since we're talking about politics, David, you had your mouth open, so it sounds like you want to. I was gonna, I was gonna go to a, a lighter story, but let's knock out this politics story, and then we'll get. Well, I was gonna lighter. jump to Hunter Biden since since we're well knock the... it out, go for it. You might as well just do it. Just, since, just get it out. Get it since out. we we might be, uh, you know, we might be irritating people. Might as well get it all out of the way. Um, so, so Hunter Biden got indicted, and I thought this would be an interesting use for AI because I don't want to read the whole you know, indictment document. And I also don't want to just read the biased news coverage of it. So I took the PDF of the indictment and I asked Claude, 
www.cpa.ai to provide an executive summary of the document in plain English. I said, I'm a CPA. You are a health pool legal assistant. Provide an executive summary of this document in plain English. I am particularly interested in any accounting or tax issues. And uh, here's the main allegations as summarized by AI. Biden earned substantial income from various sources, like serving on boards in Ukraine and China, but did not pay all of the taxes he owed. He owed around $1.4 million in federal income taxes over four years, but engaged in a scheme to not pay them. He subverted the normal payroll-slash-withholding process that his company used to pay taxes by taking money directly out that avoided tax withholding. So he just took so distributions. That's reasonable compensation, right? Yeah. Like, he, he avoided that. Okay. Yeah. Um, despite owing large tax bills... Hunter Biden spent lavishly on luxury lifestyle with uh, money that could have paid his taxes. This included drugs, escorts, expensive real estate rentals, exotic cars, hotels, clothing, etc. And in 2019 to 2020, when he was facing contempt of court in two civil lawsuits, he finally filed his late tax returns for like three or four, uh, 16, 17, 18, three years, but he did not pay over $1 million owed. And then there's an allegation of false deductions. And I asked, I was curious, what are these deductions that he claimed? Because those are always the fun ones in the indictments. Like, what did he actually spend this money on that he should have paid his taxes with? Uh, so he claimed in 2018, 388,000 in business travel expenses. The government alleges that Biden did very little true business travel that year and instead claimed luxury hotel stays and personal trips as business deductions. No, no surprise there. We've all had clients that uh, do that. Wages slash payroll expenses for women he had relationships with. Hunter Biden allegedly put several women he had romantic relationships with on his company payroll and paid them salaries and benefits, then deducted this from his company's taxes despite them doing no work. Well, what if she had uh, financial expertise like your first story earlier in the, the episode? Like, and she could provide some financial guidance. Or maybe you could make the argument that sleeping with Hunter Biden is a, is a job. <laughs> luxury car rentals and housing for girlfriends. Expenses like luxury car rentals when he first moved to California and house rentals for a girlfriend were allegedly falsely claimed as business deductions. Extravagant hotel stays. He stayed in hotel suites in locations like Beverly Hills and Las Vegas. Claimed that as business travel. Government says it was personal indulgence. False consulting expenses. He he categorized he allegedly categorized wire transfers to women providing personal services and funds spent at a sex club as consulting fees for his business. <laughs> so, and then family expenses: tuition for his daughter's law school, rent for his daughter's New York City apartment, and his personal life insurance premiums were allegedly falsely stated as business deductions. Whew! So, if true, if true, man. So, so if 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 all guilty, what does he wind up owing? What's the total here? Well, he, it's like a million dollars, but again, like with penalties and, I mean, you could go to jail for this. So, so as an expert you know? witness, your services to the, to be engaged could be worth a good hundred grand to be an expert witness about how these are business expenses possibly. Maybe. There, there might be a good racket here for some PhD business <laughs> professor or accounting professor somewhere <laughs> to make a quick hundred grand. All right, David, I'm going to let you close things out here. We yeah, got a few um, more I gave minutes. you a clip, and I'm going to have you play this in, in a moment. Um, so there's an, this article I found on nofilmschool.com, and it kind of really reminded me of you a little bit, Blake, right? Like you, you were not in accounting, and you had to get some skill sets here. And so there's a new film called All Sorts, and it's about a data entry worker that's working in a depressed Windows 98 era, era cubicle office. Maybe like a lot of current accounting firms. I don't know, right? Um, so... <laughs> The writer-director wrote an article, and I'm going to tell you about the article in a moment, but could, why don't you play, I have a little clip of him talking about his background. And this is what reminded me of you. I in Los Angeles. I found out that it's really hard to get a job in film. And so I worked on all these different office jobs, had a lot of data entry jobs where all you're doing is entering numbers from one spreadsheet into another spreadsheet and then faxing it back to somewhere. I was writing all of these office stories where something magical happens. I think I've always been drawn to these magical, surreal office environments. And that's what became the basis for all sorts. Yeah. So, 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 so he wrote this movie, and it looks, actually looks kind of fun. Uh, be interesting to watch. But his blog post is amazing. So he wrote a blog post, and the title is called The 73 Spreadsheets You'll Need to Finish Your Feature Film. So he's a, he's a movie director, and he talks about his top learnings. A, things you probably 
don't have to learn pivot tables. B, things you wish for you, they were useful, but probably aren't pie charts. <laughs> and then things you're most likely going to have to learn, formulas. And then he goes on and he lists all these spreadsheets. And from pre-production, right? You need your the team you're going to work with, the investors, your budget, and any screenshots and puts these, oh, these cool. uh, items in the blog ah, post here. Wow. And contacts, casting, contracts, even post-production, social media posts, um, editing, visual effects, uh, the distribution, everything, film festivals, everything. Now, yes, arguably he's using a spreadsheet like a database, but a lot of people do because it's so versatile. But it, it reminds me of some discussions I've had with my my wife's a counselor at high school, and she talks. She's always telling kids, "You need to learn, regardless of anything, you need to learn Google Sheets or Excel." Because you see this happen a lot. Um, political. If you ever do political volunteering, Blake, mm -hmm. it tends to be a very senior crowd that's involved in that. Yep. And none of them can use a spreadsheet. But most of the things, like the door-to-door -door knocking, list campaigns, phone call campaigns, and Paul is all like a CSV file, right, or a that's spreadsheet or a Google sheet, and they just can't use them. So there's just like a, when we think about the accounting profession in general, like spreadsheets have got to now be common, common taught in school now. This is amazing. I did not realize that it was so many spreadsheets to make a movie. <laughs> I mean, just look at this. We've got, uh, there's, there's 12 PR slash marketing spreadsheets. There are, whoop, I keep moving around here, 20 pre-production spreadsheets, including budget spreadsheets. Uh, Production spreadsheets, post spreadsheets, crowdfunding spreadsheets, distribution spreadsheets. So a lot of this isn't finance, but it's like project management. Makes me wonder, like, why hasn't somebody created an app for this yet? Well, I think that's the bed of Airtable and all of those ones that are letting it, spreadsheets be kind of a hyper yeah. database. But at the end of the day, this is probably one of the biggest uses of Excel is people using project it for management. These project management. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and, you know, the reason nobody has made an app is because uh, there's no money in independent films. <laughs> there you go. But maybe AI could, could manage this someday. Well, David, that's all the time we have this week. If our listeners want to follow you online, where can they do that? I'm on all the socials, just at David Leary. I'm at Blake T. Oliver. Follow me on LinkedIn. That's my favorite place these days now that Twitter, now known as X, has become a dumpster fire. Uh, and I really am not just saying that because it's popular to say, like, I find my feed has gotten, like, much worse. Um, so I don't know what they're doing over there, but they're really messing it up. So LinkedIn is my new home. And send us an email, theaccountingpodcast at earmark.me. Subscribe to us on YouTube. Find out what we look like. Maybe you'll be surprised. We've had some people say, Blake, I thought your voice was David's. And they've said, David, I thought your voice was Blake's. And don't forget, it's CPE season. It's the most wonderful time of the year. You can earn free CPE for listening to this show. If you are listening to me right now and you made it all the way through this episode, you're due one continuing professional education credit. Download the Earmark app. Find our show on the app. You can verify you already listened. Take a five-question quiz and get a CPE certificate. And you can do that for free every single week. And if you want to support our work at Earmark, you can subscribe for uh, at this point, $130 a year. And that and is a business expense. That's a valid business expense. That is a valid okay. business expense. Yes. It's it's <laughs> very valid. And um, I don't want us to be in, in some news article one day. They spend $130 on lavish things like earmark. And we have a special bonus interview for you. Uh, we just spoke with AICPA Sue Coffee and Lexi Kessler from the National Pipeline Advisory Group. This is the committee the AICPA set up to come up with a plan to solve the accounting talent crisis. And we got both of them on for half an hour, spoke in depth about the committee and what they're doing, and it's a great interview. Go find that on the Accounting Podcast feed. Take a listen and let us know what you think. All right, thanks everyone for joining us. Uh, great to see you, and... Happy New Year. Merry Christmas. See you around. Time for the classifieds. 
Your accounting firm is buzzing with new hires. They're eager, they're promising, they say they know QuickBooks inside and out, but soon you're seeing red flags. Errors keep creeping into the work, and once again, you're in the trained, correct repeat cycle. Break free with Royal Wise Owls. Alisa Katz Pollock, one of Ignition's 2023 top 50 women in accounting, developed a comprehensive QuickBooks training platform with live webinars and on demand courses enabling your staff to learn QBO while earning CPE. Their bronze, silver, and gold memberships range from core QBO courses and discussion groups to unlimited video library access, monthly coaching sessions, and exclusive discounts. Kickstart your journey towards a QuickBooks savvy workforce today by visiting royalwise.com. That's royalwise.com. Stop settling for slow payments and say hello to the future of AR with Forwardly. Accounts that use Forwardly can receive payments in less than 22 seconds. Yes, under 22 seconds via the newly launched FedNow network. And if your bank or a client's bank doesn't yet use FedNow, Forwardly will send the payment via same-day ACH for free. To get paid in under 22 seconds, go to forwardly.com. That's forwardly.com. Want to get the word out about your newsletter, webinar, party, Facebook group, podcast, ebook, job posting, or that fancy Excel macro you just created? Why not let the listeners of the Cloud Accounting Podcast know by running a classified ad? Hit the show notes for the link to get more info.